Green Left Weekly Radio. There is one newspaper that is independent of powerful interests, and that's Green Left Weekly. It's a people's voice committed to human and civil rights, environmental sustainability, democracy and equality. It presents ideas mainstream media won't. It's the leading source of local, national and international news analysis and discussion and debate to strengthen the anti-capitalist movements. It exposes the lies and distortions of the power brokers and helps us to better understand the world around us. Good morning, um, listeners. You are listening to Green Left Weekly um, Radio. Um, it is uh, 7 a.m. on the 855 a.m. dial. Um, and in the studio today, we have me, Jacob, and Megan, who's helping fill in again. Because, Good um, morning. So, Lali and um, Zane haven't been available, but Zane will be in the program as a presenter next week, along with myself. Um, so, we have a pre. We have a. We- for our program, what we have lined up um, is we're going to be speaking um, to some representatives um, later today from Grandmothers Against um, Removals and um, Shut Down Youth Prisons on this whole on the whole issues that are happening ar- um, around prison laws in um, Darwin, especially um, regarding the incarceration and imprisonment of Aboriginal children and teenagers. Um, so that will be happening at eight ten a.m. and then um, probably. Um, after we do a bit of discussion of a lot of the headline articles and news stories um, for the first 10 minutes, we'll be playing in the second part of the interview by Peter Kornig um, on Venezuela. Um, so I'll give a bit of an introduction to that before we um, before we play that. Um, and I guess before we move on um, to uh, the, new, um, the headline news... Uh, for this program, um, I'd like to acknowledge that FreeCR today is being broadcast to you um, from the Wandry land of the Kulin Nation. Um, I'd like to pay our respect um, to Elders past and present, um, and that this always was, um, always will be Aboriginal land. Right. So, um, I guess the, fir- the thing I want to kind of discuss um, is probably a lot of listeners have been probably following... Um, we covered this last week, but this whole kind of African kind of gang scare campaign. Yeah, and you can tell there's an upcoming election. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, that's that's um, that's part of the analysis that um, Leo in um, the headline article for Green Left Weekly um, writes here. And, you know, he writes that, you know, this, I mean, just recently... Um, I just shared a, a Facebook status, um, which is basically photos of a, a 14-year-old, a 14-year-old Luca, um, who was the son of Warmaka, uh, who was stabbed by two Anglo kids in Melbourne. Oh um, this possibly happened around one to two days ago. Um, he is recovering well, um, but it's really kind of this is what you can say is the result of, you know, the kind of scaremongering kind of tactics and dog whistling from the likes of Peter Dutton, um, Malcolm Turnbull. And this is this is real effects on children. That's a minor there. These are children that are suffering here. It's yeah, it's crazy. Yeah, and I think one of the I think it's worth highlighting the the worst um, thing, that, most racist thing that uh, um, that has ha- that has sort of been said recently is actually in Andrew Bolt's latest column. And um, 
And in fact, it's on a whole totally, I mean, I know Andrew Bolt can be bad, but this is actually on a whole different level of, um, he basically makes this sort of argument that, you know, because there's all these immigrants coming from all nationalities, including Jewish people in South Caulfield, although they've been there for quite a while, I don't it's, I'm not sure why he decided to bring it. But he basically attacked any kind of minority group um, that is um, migrating to Australia because they are apparently um, not integrating into the Australian way of life. Um, and then there's this sort of weird um, kind of argument about how they're all going to start feel, um, forming colonies. And I'm pretty sure um, that's exactly what happened when... Um, when well, that's actually basically how Australia was founded, when Captain <laughs> Cook and the British entered into... Uh, Jacob, those people were white. Yes, <laughs> and they and so there's there's just all this, um, yeah. But I think it's possibly represents the kind of worst of um, the race um, racism in Australia. Um, this Andrew Bolt article, and it's really reflects all this kind of stuff that's all this dog whistling around, you know, African gangs. Um, mm. It all comes from really the same place, and this is really, you know, as um, Leo writes here. Um, which is not in relation response to Andrew Bolt, we can describe this quote as being really uh, um, quite appropriate. appropriate. And he says, you know, this is what, um, in referring to the African gang sort of fiasco, he said, this is what um, the entire episode is ultimately about. It is a racist distraction meant to take focus um, from the causes of the real problems within society. Um, It pits working class people against one another under the false guise of an ethically ethnicity-based crime problem that exploits the poor economic situation and diminishes the consciousness of the real enemy, the corporate elite. And what I wonder is, has Andrew Bolt ever actually spoken to any of these members of these communities? Has he actually gone and talked to them and asked them about the issues that they have and talked to them as human beings? I mean, we had people on the radio show last week and they were young um, members of the Sudanese community who were eloquent, who were people who just wanted to live a life and to have the same opportunities as everyone else. It was um, it was great to have them on the show. And honestly, if Andrew Bolt and people like him just sat there and talked to people and uh, from these communities maybe they would have a different opinion. I mean, one would hope. <laughs> or I would uh, probably disagree in, in slightly there, but I think there's really an intentional kind of effect um, for p- the likes of Andrew Bolton, the kind of racism. It's sort of, it is quite well intended. It is actually intended. Uh, intended. It's not out of sheer ignorance. So you don't you don't think he's just simply ignorant no, he's not of simply, these people? I would say okay. that Andrew Bolton is not simply ignorant. He knows exactly what he's doing and he benefits... Um, entirely from he benefits from the um, racist dog whistling that he does on a daily basis. Mm. It's as sort of what I was saying. It's really you have this um, situation where you know you have a, a kind of corporate kind of elite that kind of rules of, over Australia, but then there's a problem, um, the issue they benefit entirely from all this kind of racism monster. And actually, that sort of segues way into a sort of a good discussion about the current rates for inequality. Would you like to sort of? Yes. Um, okay. So ACOS has released a, a report and basically they have said that the richest 20% of households in Australia, this is Australia we're talking about, 
The richest 20% of households own 62% of all the wealth. Now, we're talking about the average household um, in, in this wealthy 20% uh, is the average household, household wealth of that 20% is $2.9 million, which is almost 100 times that of the lowest 20%. Now, we tend to see Australia as quite an egalitarian society, but over the years, the income um, inequality has increased and it's an alarming rate. Um So ACOS Chief um, Executive uh, Cassandra Goldie has said that the report's findings deeply challenge our sense of Australia as an egalitarian country. This this is a report that shows that what we perceive Australia as being and what Australia is in the current in the current years is completely different. We we don't we are no longer the country of a fair go, and we haven't been for quite some time, unfortunately. Yeah, well, I think um, something I want to sort of highlight because this is one of my kind of campaign areas is one of the interesting things um, about um, about some of the. Um, some of the latest Australian Bureau of Statistics figures, um, um, separate from this ACOS study, although um, um, related. Um, and it shows that, you know, there's often this line kind of thrown around um, we, we get to, we see the increased um, rates of homelessness in um, Melbourne especially and in Sydney. Um, and sort of a comment that's often directed at, at homeless people is to kind of, you know, they should just go get a job. Yeah, but, like it's that simple. <laughs> well, 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 the problem is the, the contradiction is here that um, mm. the latest Australian Bureau of Statistics figures um, that were released on July 24 show that, you know, at least 16.5% of homeless people are working full-time. Um, and it's sort of mean... And by homelessness, it's quite a broad category. There's, pe- mm. there's um, people who housing. would be... Who would um, who would be sleeping in their cars, um, people who would be um, otherwise maybe boarding at their um, friend's house, like sleeping on the couch at their friend's place, mm. um, moving between rentals, they would be classified as homeless. Um, and so what, what it shows is that, you know, in Australia alone, there's over 28 and 600,000... Um, so 28,600 28, homeless yeah, people um, in, in Australia, Australia work full-time. That's disturbing. These yeah. people work full-time and yet they can't afford a roof over their head. Well, yeah. I, I remember um, reading an article this is in relation to the Sydney... Um, Sydney, you would probably can probably say the rents are getting extorbent, like almost excessive, mm, and you have this situation absolutely. where um, a lot of full time, say, hospitality workers, um, some of the low low income workers can can't even afford to live in Sydney, um, yep. yet their work revolves is actually around, in Sydney. Is it actually in mm-hmm. Sydney? So, and then it's like where they could potentially live is all the way far to the western sort of suburbs, where um, there isn't a lot of job opportunities. Well, there isn't and, a lot of job, but yeah. then there's also creates the issues of um, commuting from work, mm-hmm. all that kind of thing. So, the quality of life issue. Yeah, so that's a, that's. Um, that's quite a shame. And I think, yearly, this is sort of the, the context by which, I mean, a lot of this kind of racism around sort of African gangs. Um, but there's also, I think, another point um, that I think is important to raise. And that is, I think, I think there's, we have to we have to be critical of the fact that the you know our state labor government is quite complicit um, in not actually challenging the racism for what it is. Yes. Um, in fact, the response of the Daniel Andrews government to the racism. I mean, he said some reasonable things that you know, um, um, like in response to one of Peter Dutton's comments. You know, he called it disrespectful. You know, fair enough. But as um, but what's clear is uh, um, in response, he was under pressure. They basically 
haven't voted this in, but they've discussed tabling um, anti-association laws. Yes, which were brought up at the rally as well. I mean, they would disproportionately affect members of the you know of these communities that are targeted. Mm. Yeah. And so what it what it um, what it says to me is you know in the context of. Um, a, a looming kind of state election. You know, we have a state Labor government that is, you know, that re- does some reasonably progressive left things, um, mm. like, you know, voluntary euthanasia, you know, there was imp- um, there was safe school stuff, that all that kind of thing. But it also is a government that's... And also the free TAFE courses. So that's... Um, those are all the mm. kind of those progressive sort issues, of left-wing yeah. bans that the Daniel Andrew gave, government is pushing, although obviously in response to, you know, the strong social movements kind of around those areas. But what what's intriguing, what is, I think, noticeable is the fact is they're, they're trying to um, cater to both the left and the right. Um, mm. They're... Um, when it when when it comes to the the racism outright racism that's coming from um, the likes of Matthew Guy, who is the opposition um, leader in the state parliament, um, they're not willing to challenge or call out the racism. Um, yeah, and their that. silence is complicit, in my opinion. Yeah, yeah. So basically, it's similar to how the federal Labor government is completely silent on you know offshore detention or that their mm. their kind of complicity actually. Great fosters an environment for more deeper racism um, that actually makes this, makes the situation far worse and actually leads to the yeah. rise of sort of like you know far right figures and, and you know like the recent guest um, like the recent um, far right guests that um, toured Australia recently Lauren oh, Southern Lauren and Southern. Stephen yeah. Molnix. Um, you could argue that anything they say is actually no different to what actually Peter Dutton has said in the no, past. No, there really isn't. The spirit of it is exactly the same. And unfortunately, Peter is one of the leaders of our country. So, yeah. you know, he's Whereas Lauren Sovereign and Stephen Molex are just YouTubers. So, exactly. Um, they don't hold the authority. And we have someone in authority speaking pretty much exactly the same sort of sentiments. Yes. All right, so I think, yeah, that's um, what I guess of kind of point I kind of wanted to end on this discussion. I guess it's very clear that, you know, the state Labor government is catering to both the left and the right and they're not brave or actually willing enough um, to actually challenge the racism of the right-wing opposition and, in fact, prefer an attempt Mm. to court sort of right-wing voters and, I guess, sort of more marginal electorates to the east and, uh, and to the four rural parts of Melbourne. Um, they're not willing to kind of challenge or campaign against this racism. They're just willing to sort of cater it while also trying to still win not win the progressive vote off um, because of a lot of the progressive sort of demand. Absolutely, because once again, ladies and gentlemen, we have a state election coming up in November. So, yes, make sure you get out there and vote. Hmm. Yeah, okay. So, um. First thing, I might just play a quick announcement um, and then we'll go on to introducing the second part of this um, interview that we're going to play for the program. All right. Um, good morning. Um, it is, um, you're listening to Green Left Weekly Radio. Um, it is 7.15am on the 855am dial. Um, and I'm just going to be, for the next 15 minutes, I'm going to be playing the second part of an interview by Peter Koenig um, that was pre-recorded um, by one of our presenters on the program. Um, and we played the first part um, last week. Um, and to give you a bit of a con- introduction to who Peter Koneg is, um, he is an economist and geopolitical analysis. Um, he has worked over f- um, for over 30 years with the World Bank and the World Health Organizations around the world in the fields of environment and water. Um, he's a you know, lecturer um, at many different university at different universities in the US, Europe, um, and South America. And he writes regularly for 
Tillisur, um, Global Research, ICH, um, Sputnik, and um, the Ryan Yard of the Saki. Kia blog and other internet sites. And he's also the author of Implosion, an economic thriller about war, environmental destruction, and corporate greed. Fiction based on facts and on 30 years of World Bank experience around the globe. He is also the co-author of the World Order and Revolution Essays from the Resistance. Um, so I'll be playing the second part of the interview, continuing from the first part, um, and hope you listeners enjoy it. Thank you very much for being available to 3CR for this interview, Peter. Coming back to to uh, Venezuela is uh, is very important to follow, and they have a very strong strong fifth column also inside the country. Hmm. And it was during these uh, three days of conference, it was actually quite difficult to determine where they are. But I can imagine that they are also embedded somehow in the financial system. Maybe even in the central bank, I, I, I wouldn't know, but it will be very difficult. But thanks to them, these uh, speculations, which are manipulated mostly out of, uh, of Miami and a little bit also out of Colombia, uh, that's why they can happen. Otherwise, they could, they would have stopped immediately. They would have stopped all transactions, dollar, private dollars transactions already, already a long time ago because this is not new. Yes. It's just so bad that they can actually cause inflation rates. I think yeah, last year in one month, they had an inflation rate. I forgot which one it was. Maybe September. Uh, it was so high. It was about 6,000%. Wow. You can imagine 6,000% in one month. That mm. throws everybody off. Mm. You know, the, the merchants don't know how to price things and... Uh, and the, uh, the, the, the consumers don't know how much to pay for something, whether they want to buy it now or when not to buy it at all. They don't have enough money anymore because the salaries are not adjusted. It creates chaos, absolute chaos. And, uh, and then, and then it drops again. I think the average inflation last year was, uh, was around 50% or, or below. So far from the 6,000. But this is the fluctuation that uh, that, that throws everything everything off. Of course, that's, it's very difficult to function in in such uh, unstable um, value. Absolutely. Well, it's ability in, in the currency, isn't it? Yes. Yes. Mm. So, to, if, if you if you want to sum up, how would you uh, say that um, Maduro was performing? Um, after all, he did win the the, the elections with a, great, a big, quite a big majority, and with the people's um, confidence in him, um, his plans will work. Uh, yes. Well, <laughs> you hope. That's a very good question. <laughs> this is a this is a very good question because. The more uh, his plan is being boycotted by from outside, uh, the more he, he risks to lose the trust of all those that have voted for him. Yes. Uh, roughly six million, six million people. Mm. So he had after the after the elections, he had a he had a, a solid block of six uh, million uh, Venezuelans behind him. But as they keep uh, suffering, and most of them don't know the background really of it. They know some of it, but they don't know the real background. Well, it's so complex, and, isn't it? Sorry? It, it is very complex. It's very complex. So mm. it's, it's very, very complex. Plus, there's another factor which also plays into it. There's a lot of, uh, uh, of Western propaganda. All the news agencies, uh, you know, CNN, uh, NBC, 
BBC and so on and their subsidiaries, uh, even local subsidiaries, 90% of the media is in, in, under control or under foreign control. And all they do is uh, making lie propaganda. So people are actually influenced by that too. Mm. One of my questions already long before this conference, um, and during which time I was in contact with the Venezuelan government, I suggested, why don't you do what other countries do? I mean, it says block these, uh, take away the, take away their licenses. Nationalize not- them. <laughs> Sorry? Nationalize them. Well, nationalize the banks. That's another That's thing. That's right. But, but, but take, take away the, take away the, uh, the licenses of these, uh, so that they cannot broadcast anymore. Yes. And you know what the response is? And this is something which I, I don't quite understand. They say, well, we can't do that. Otherwise, we will be accused, uh, we will be accused of anti-democratic That's right. measures. And they do that That's too. Free, freedom of speech. But I said, this has nothing to do with freedom of speech. This is slandering. This is lying. This is not freedom of speech anymore. Mm. That's how they use it. The Western media will use it in that fashion. They do that with so many other countries. Yes, exactly. Exactly. And you could do that temporarily. You you declare as France did. You know, in France, uh, France, which is sort of a peaceful country, France... Uh, is living in a in a constant since uh, since two or three years now in a constant state of emergency, which is basically martial law. And Macron was able to include uh, the the state of emergency in the French constitution. So at any time he can totally uh, militarize and 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 create a police state in France. And if France can do that on a permanent basis. Why wouldn't Venezuela be able to do that on an emergency basis? Because they live in emergency right now. Hmm. But uh, that's because the uh, U.S. So hates Venezuela. You know, in, from from Cuba is jumped to Venezuela now, and um, Venezuela is in a much stronger position um, with its uh, oil economy. That, that's that's what frightens them, doesn't it? Yes, of course, absolutely. And uh, but but I said, look, you're being demonized anyway. You're being <laughs> demonized for undemocratic elections. Yes, that is the, the main pretext for the Europeans uh, to follow the U.S. Uh, with sanctions, where it's absolutely the contrary. You know, the the Carter uh, Institute, which observed, uh, I think, in the past, they said 92 worldwide elections. Uh, that's the the institute carried by by former President uh, Carter, yeah. uh, that has they have a reputation of going into countries and, and observing. They are fairly good. And they've said Venezuela has the most democratic elections they have seen worldwide of yes, the 92 yes. elections they have yes, followed. I remember that. Yeah. And, and and so did and so did other pre- former presidents like uh, Sabatero from Spain was there. Korea from from um, Ecuador uh, was there, and there are a number of others, uh, and of course more than 400 or 500 uh, international observers, and the United States plus the uh, the European Union were invited by Maduro specifically to come and observe their elections. Mm. They didn't come. Of they course. just refused to come because if they would have seen, they couldn't lie about it afterwards. That's right. So. It's, <laughs> This this is uh, this is just such a horrible world we're living in. I mean, it's it's unbelievable. Mm. And to come back to your question, uh, yes, it is a question of time. Uh, if this uh, this crisis continues, 
And it's true that the shelves on the, um, on, in the supermarkets are empty. That's right. Or almost empty. And, and people suffer, uh, and their salaries do not increase according to the inflation and so on. So there's really, it's really a lot of hardship for a lot of people. Hmm. And if that continues, then, then, uh, there may be, uh, these, this six million block may, may be crumbling. But one has to remember also why, what, what kind of an approach is this? This is, is very, very typically, I'm old enough to remember quite well, uh, uh, 1973, what uh, the CIA and the US did to Allende, you know, in mm, Chile. Yes, of course. Exactly the same. It's like a carbon copy. Yes. Uh, what they are doing. There were also food shortages, artificially created food shortages from outside. Uh, and the people went into the street, uh, there were anti-Allende sentiments, and, and, and so eventually that facilitated the final the, the coup d'etat by, by the CIA. And it's exactly the same in, in, in Venezuela. Mm. Uh, for example, this is also not new, and I've been discussing this on many occasions, Actually, with the with the ambassadors uh, of Venezuela here in in Switzerland, one in Geneva on the front of the United Nations, and the other one in Bern, and uh, and, and they have actually shown, you know, not just me to a, to a series of journalists, the, uh, the the bills that they pay every month for the import of foods and goods that should be on the supermarket shelves. It's always the same. This amount of money is not being reduced, but the, 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 the goods that arrive at the various ports are being hijacked, either the, being hijacked directly by gangs, particularly paid by outside, or uh, by uh, the, uh, the companies that should distribute them, the private companies that are being bought or being threatened, mafia-type threatening. And then the merchandise is being uh, deviated, uh, most of it... Uh, smuggled into Colombia, uh, where it's then uh, resold, a lot of it, to rich Venezuelans who just crossed the border and, 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 and buy that stuff in, in, uh, in, in Colombia. And that is why another element of manipulating the, the black market, the dollar market, comes out of uh, Colombia. Depending on how many goods and wares they have to sell, they will make adjustments to, to the main manipulator uh, of, uh, from Miami. Mm. One, one, one of the so, questions that, uh, that this gives rise to is, why did Venezuela got, got, you know, got to a stage where they could not produce food locally? Because they were producing uh, food locally before the, the oil economy and all that came in. So what, what's the story there? Oops, absolutely, you're right. I mean, uh, they were almost, I think, uh, at some point self-sufficient or almost self-sufficient. And, and the capacity is admitted by most Venezuelans uh, is, uh, is there to, to be self-sufficient. Why they didn't? I mean, there were mistakes. And, and one of the first remarks Maduro made is also, did we make mistakes? Yes, we made mistakes. We made lots of mistakes. And we are trying to correct these mistakes now. Uh, so yes, they made a lot of mistakes because it was suddenly it was simple. We had uh, or they had uh, these uh, these reserves, these enormous reserves. The oil prices were high, 
they could live uh, uh, great with uh, with with the income from from petrol. From, yes. And actually, uh, under Chavez, and then later under under Maduro, these uh, social programs, social housing programs, uh, education programs, health centers everywhere, and so on. Uh, all of that was financed was financed easily by by the revenues from from petrol, and they neglected the the, the self sufficiency element uh, in terms of uh, of agriculture. Mm. And, and and so this is this this they have to catch up. Uh, so in parallel, this that's the complication maybe in parallel of uh, de-dollarizing because uh, they cannot really de-dollarize if they have to pay their imports in dollars. Uh, they have to find other avenues uh, for importing food in the meantime until they are self-sufficient. And, uh, and and this brings to mind actually something, you know, I call this whole process, I call that resistance economy. Mm. And that, that brings to mind what uh, President Putin already said two or three years ago. He said that the sanctions, uh, that w- was the best thing that could have happened to Russia since the collapse of the Soviet Union. Because it forced them, it forced them to, to reinvent and to rehabilitate uh, and to reinstitute the whole agricultural sector and and the industrial parks to become self-sufficient, and they have reached within relatively short uh, short time food self-sufficiency because before you know they ev- everything was imported for Europe from Europe. It was mm. so simple and so easy that yes. they really neglected the agricultural sector, and uh, now uh, you know since two years. Uh, uh, Russia is the largest uh, uh, wheat exporter in the world. Mm. About half the wheat circulating in the, in, in, the, in the world is Russian wheat. So maybe you're eating a croissant tomorrow morning and it's made out of Russian wheat. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> you never know. Just, just, to, just, just to tell what is possible if you put your, hand, your, your, your discipline and your mind behind it. And so Russia today has uh, one of the most modern industrial parks and is totally food self-sufficient and do not need, they do not depend on, on, on medical imports anymore from, from, from the West. Yes. They may still use them, but they don't depend on them anymore. Mm. So this is, this is what, this will be the idea for Venezuela to follow too. Yep. And, uh, will they do it? Will they have uh, the strength to do that, to, to, to confront the fifth column, uh, really drastically? Uh, I mean, there's the, the, the life is a danger too. You know that uh, you go to in, on internet and, and you find pages of pages of political figures that have been assassinated by the CIA and other U.S. Circuit, uh, secret services because they didn't behave the U.S. wanted them to behave. Yes. So there's there's really really a lot of uh, at stake in in Venezuela. Mm. But I trust that they will that they will eventually overcome this. But it's a question of time. So your, your initial question, yes, it is a question of time. They, they cannot allow themselves to lose this block of uh, 6 million adherents that they have had uh, on the May 20th, uh, May 20 elections. Uh, yeah, it was amazingly uh, true. Yes. Yes. Okay, thank you so much. That was much longer than I expected, but it's a fantastic interview. And, and there's an enormous amount of information that, you know, has not appeared in any media here, of course. Um, so 
I'm very grateful. And uh, through our radio, it will become public for people to listen and they can go back and listen to the podcast. And Okay. So okay. thank you so much, Peter. You're very welcome. Okay. Bye-bye. All right, so that was um, Peter Kuneg. Um, he was an economist and geopolitical analysis, um, talking about kind of like uh, um, the politics of Venezuela, what's kind of happening on sort of an economic level based on, um, from an economical perspective, um, based on a conference that he attended. All right, um, so you're listening to Green Left um, Weekly Radio. Um, we're going to move on to some local news stories. So I'll go just pass it on to Megan, who was going to talk about a few things. Yes, so last week we uh, touched upon the My Health Record issues, and um, I just wanted to give you an update. So basically, uh, Health Minister, Federal Health Minister Greg Hunt, has actually bowed to pressure um, and has announced some changes to address privacy concerns privacy concerns which were uh, brought up by health bodies and also by the general community. Um, The first point that I'd like to make is um, that he has now said that the legislation will be changed so that any police or government agencies requiring access to patient data on my health records will now need a court order. Uh, The next is that uh, the opt-out period looks like it's going to be extended. Um, So at the moment, you have until October 15th to opt-out, but that looks like it's going to be extended, although I would point out that you probably should opt-out anyway before October 15th if you are going to. Probably one of the main things is um, that now you will be able to withdraw after the opt-out period. And before, if you had withdrawn... um, from the uh, my health records filing um, before after this, it would normally have meant that your records, the basic information of your records, could be kept up to 130 years. But now uh, the the health minister has actually said, no, look, um, all records will be deleted. Now let's just point out that this is due to community and health body pressure. They would not have made a single change if we hadn't have spoken out. Um, so probably uh, one thing of still of concern. It's a significant concern for myself and for other people is we still have a number of corporate bodies, large companies who still have access to this Telstra, Health Engine, Tide, um, Healthy. All of these companies will still have access to this. And look, as we um, pointed out yesterday, um, last week... Um, the My Health Record system has a privacy framework that is identical to a failed system in England that was cancelled after it was found to be selling patient data to drug and insurance companies. So this is a definite concern and it doesn't seem to be being covered by many um, uh, mainstream media outlets. Um, corporations will still have access to your data. Sure, the government bodies will need a court order, but how much information is potentially leakable through corporations? And that's just something that I wanted to point out in in the update of my health records. And then the other one, which is also um, health-related, basically, is that um, in handing down findings into the uh, 2014 death of Iranian asylum seeker Hamid Kahazi on Monday... Queensland Coroner Terry Ryan recommended that the RACGP, which is the Royal Australian College of General Practitioners, accredit offshore medical services in the same way they do onshore medical services. Now, um, this this is problematic, and basically um, the... 
um, the president of the uh, RACP, RAGCP, or RACGP, sorry, um, Bastian Seidel has said, look, we will, as long as reports and as long as um, all medical information or all information coming out of that is made publicly available, any reports um, on medical issues are made publicly available because, as we know, um, the government, uh, with regards to offshore processing, has been very secretive, very secretive indeed, and they fight very hard to keep the information out of the public sphere. Um, now, Bastian Seidel, the, the president of the um, RACGP, has actually pointed out with regards to the um, Hamid Kahazai uh, case. Um, so just to put it in context, um, it happens all the time that bureaucrats overrule the clinical decisions of doctors who are employed to provide care for people in offshore processing. Now, um, Hamid was on Manus Island and developed a, quite a critical uh, condition. Um, now, he actually quoted, uh, the, the Bastian Seidel quoted, if a doctor had made the wrong call in treating Hamid Kahazai, the discussion would have been around medical negligence and professional responsibility. But in this case, bureaucrats overruled the doctor's clinical recommendations. Should the discussion be around the professional responsibility of people in these positions? And I would absolutely say yes. I mean, if you make a bureaucratic decision that overrules a clinical decision made by a health professional and it results in the, in the death of an individual, you should be held accountable. This is criminal and it's there's nothing else that you can say about it. So um, I, I'm really glad that they are actually speaking up, but we have a lot of problems and we do need to speak out about offshore processing and the health implications um, for people on these um, islands. And that's it. All right. Um, thank you very much, Megan. Um, so that was just a bit of um, updates on some of the local kind of um, news articles. Um, some things that are happening uh, locally. Um, I kind of want to move on to just a few things. Actually, while we can stay stay on what's happening, I want to talk just a bit about um, some actions that kind of happened um, in Australia around in the past week, um, give a bit of a sort of active support. Um, and I'm just one thing I want to highlight is that um, August 1st um, was a bit of a sort of one-year kind of anniversary, or it's been marking sort of the one year um, since the release of the Human Rights Commission Change the Course um, report um, relating to universities um, that found that one in 10 women um, experienced sexual assault while studying in the past two years. And so there were a number of students um, on universities around Australia um, held protests on on August the 1st, demanding that campuses um, such as University of Melbourne, um, University of Sydney, um, be free from sexual violence on be free from sexual violence. And so they all attracted a number of hundreds of people um, all across the different universities and mostly um, students and um, led and organised by feminist activists. Um, one thing I kind of want to highlight is um, one of the demand, some of the demands um, that the University of Sydney activists, and I'm sure this also applies to University of Melbourne as well, um, which I was unfortunately not able to make the protest, um, demanded the closure of the colleges, um, which is um, probably for people that don't go to university, colleges are sort of like almost like this sort of... Residential housing. Residential um, housing sort of... Places for students. Places yeah. for students. Um 
yeah, there's real systematic problems with a lot of these colleges. Um, I'm sure probably listeners have probably heard um, of the so-called frat culture in um, the um, United States. In uh, Australia, you could argue strongly that at these sort of colleges um, fester a very similar kind of level of systematic mm, kind of sexism. Yeah. And so one of the demands is that they want these colleges to be closed um, and to be replaced with affordable student housing instead. Um, well, another thing about these colleges is they're also very unaffordable anyway to begin with. Um, I don't think any average mm. um, working-class university student would be able to afford them. Um, and so, you know, if the, if the university's putting all this money into paying for these expensive colleges which have all these hosts of sim- systematic problems... Um, the activists are raising demand, well, why can't they just be replaced with affordable student housing in um, the neighbouring area? And so that's that's um, something that happened over over the four, first of August. And um, yes, we'll definitely cover more um, about the campaign um, as it continues. All right, um, you're listening to Green Left Weekly Radio. It's um, 7.42 a.m. Um what I want to um, spend probably the next um, five to eight minutes um, talking about is um, some of the current developments that have happened around Palestine and uh, the Palestine Solidarity Movement. Um, reading an article from um, Green Left Weekly, um, wh- what is um, uh, a bit of a big kind of de- big kind of thing happened in terms of the Solidarity Movement, where um, there was a boat um, that was part of the International Freedom um, Florida Coalition, um, which describes itself as a grassroots people-to-people um, solidarity movement composed of campaigns and initiatives from all over the world working together to end the siege of um, Gaza. And what has ha- happened, um, there were a number of activists on um, on this boat, um, including... Um, including um, the Australian New Matilda editor, editor Chris Graham, um, and also the Unite Union National Director, Mike Treen. Um, and so but organisers who had organised this boat trip um, has have, have found, said that the boat had been hijacked by Israel, rejecting Israeli's claims that its forces had intercepted and redirected their wrestle to Israel without incident. Um, the FF's... MC said on July the 31st, um, according to first-hand evidence that we have been given, um, the Israeli occupation forces rightly attacked our Norwegian flagged boat Awawada, the return, as she was in international waters. And what is quite um, terrifying is um, Israeli soldiers were reported to have beat passengers and used tasers against them. Um, Organisers said New Zealand activists and Unite Union National Director Mike Shreen um, was reported to being repeatedly tasered. And, of course, um, Shreen said that another flotilla Telia, a member, was tasered in the head. And um, the electronic uh, in- intifada um, said that one of the passengers assaulted was Dr. Sui Shai, Shai Ang, a founder of the charity Medical Aid for Palestine, Palestinians and was a witness to the 1982 massacres of Palestinians in the Sabra and Shatilia refugee camps in Beirut during the Israeli occupation of Lebanon. Um, so the, these are this is all kind of a bit of inquiry. Um, now, just to give a bit of an update on the current situation, which is not reflected in the Green Left Weekly article I'm, I'm writing on, um, a lot of the people um, who are on this boat have actually um, made a return to their home countries and they've made it home safely. Um, Mike Shreen um, for, um, has, is back in New Zealand and was welcomed by a strong 
was welcomed by a delegation of people, um, people standing with him because, um, yeah, um, I actually know Mike Shreen personally, so it was a bit of a worry um, that he was imprisoned by the Israeli forces. And um, and also Chris Graham, um, the new Matilda editor, um, is also coming, I think, is back in Sydney at this point. Um, so I think it's, yeah, just reflects sort of um, the lengths um, that the Israeli state go um, would go to, will go to because, you know, there's, it doesn't matter if you're not Palestinian, even if you're just a Palestinian solidarity activist, um, you're not free from kind of like the violence from the Israeli state. Mm, yeah. Um, the next kind of thing um, story I kind of want to highlight is um, is uh, the recent developments around um, the Palestinian act- young teenage Palestinian activist Ahid Tamimi, um, who yeah, what has, an inspiration! Yeah, she's just been um, released. She was just last week released um, from prison, um, and just sort of just reading highlight reading a few highlights from some of the things that have been reported about her um, in the media. Um, one of the things um, that um, she had said is that, you know, she had used the eight months in prison as an opportunity to study international law and hopes to one day lead cases against Israel in international co- um, courts. Um, that is one reported in The Guardian. And to give a bit of, um, and, you know, you know, she she would say that she said that, you know, the experience of being arrested was really hard. Um, as much as I, 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 I try, I cannot describe it. And of course, her trial were um, her trial was held behind closed doors, and there was concerns about her treatment and detention. Mm. Let's just emphasise this girl's a minor as well, and this is a running theme in today's um, show that minors are being ill-treated and um, unfairly. And she was jailed for eight months for slapping a soldier. Mm. So yeah. <laughs> And I think one of the things that um, is quite significant about her imprisonment is um, she's become quite an international icon for um, the Palestinian Solidarity Movement, which has actually upset um, the Israeli government to quite a large descent. And, you know, and Ahid said on this, you know, they are afraid of the truth. If they were not wrong, they would not be afraid of the truth. The truth scares them. And I managed to deliver this truth to the world. And, of course, they are, fr- they are afraid of how far I reached. Um and of course, you know, some, you know, there's a bit of a divisions um, in, in response to this. I mean, there's some in Israel believe the focus on and the rest of the teenager was a self-defeating mood for the country, while others apparently have praised the soldiers' apparent restraint and have accused Nabi Salih residents of pro- provocation. And what, and you know, I think concluding, um, there's been a number of interviews with her, and I think one uh, quote that kind of struck me is, you know, she says that, you know, I'm not the victim of occupation. Yeah, this uh, one struck me too. Yeah, and the Jew or the settler child who carries a rifle at the age of of 15, they are the victims of the occupation. Um, for me, I am capable from of distinguishing between right and wrong, but not him. His view is clouded. His heart is filled with um, hatred and scorn against the Palestinians. Um, he is the victim, not me. And I always say I am a freedom fighter, so I will not be the victim. And once again, you know, just reiterating that that Palestinian carrying that rifle through the occupied area is a minor. You know, this is a minor who's filled with hatred and given a gun. Oh, you mean Israeli? Ah, Israeli teenager. Not you said Palestinian before. I oh, sorry. Disagree. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> sorry. And yeah. Um, I think one of the, um, I guess it's in it. 
this kind of in terms of the kind of current situation and the kind of current context that's happening in um, an article in Green Left Weekly written by um, Lisa Gleason. Um, she writes here that you know, as Israeli pal- passes legislation um, that reinforces its apartheid system against non-Jews, um, Palestinians across the West Bank and Gaza, bearing the brunt of Israeli's plenary of discriminatory laws and practice, continue to resist. Um, and so what's been happening is that Palestinians are still protesting for the right to the return to homes, which they've been expelled. Um, and there's been week, kind of weekly protests, um, continuous protests um, that have happened every Friday in Palestine. And, you know, one of the... One other thing, you know, in this context, I guess it's important, always important to highlight that, you know, the support for the boycott that sanctions and divestment campaign targeting Israel is gathering strength. And, of course, an unprecedented joint statement supporting BDS was issued on July 18th by dozens of Jewish groups um, from 15 countries. And, of course... Um, Activists and supporters of the BDS movement have taken inspiration from the boycott and sanctions campaign undertaken in the 1980s that helped end apartheid in South Africa. And of course, meanwhile, life continues for the Palestinians as Gazians um, continue their weekly marches to the fences with Israel, even as Israeli bullets and bombing raids um, hit the besieged territory. That's sort of a current um, current kind of situation um, for Palestine. They're still fighting and, you know, it's still important um, to continue to express and support them in solidarity. Absolutely. And the new legislation changes um, in Israel make it nigh on impossible for them to deny now that this is apartheid. Um, Palestinians and, and non-Jewish uh, Israelis are now second-class citizens, enshrined in legislation. So, well, yeah. that, they, they've been like that for <laughs> they the past 50 or 60 years. It's now enshrined in legislation, so <laughs> they can't argue. Right. Um. So I might just go. Um. I'll be playing. Um. So that's all on sort of the current um news about latest updates on um the situation in Palestine. I have a number of other sort of things I would like to discuss um later in the program. But um first I might just play um a quick song. Okay. Um. See, so that was Yo Yo. Um. By Two Steps on the Water. Um. It is seven. Um. I'm at seven five five a.m. Um, and we probably have at least five minutes for another news article before we move on um, to the activist calendar. Um, I just want to talk a bit of a give a bit of a brief um, update on one on kind of one thing um, that's been happening, and this is going to be part of a bigger kind of discussion on kind of current situation of British politics. But to give a bit of a kind of short summary, um, there's been quite a lot. A lot of things happening around sort of Corbyn, um, Theresa May, and the kind of general trajectory of um, British politics. And so you have this situation where you have a kind of growing kind of far-right movement that is continuing to mobilise. Um, and it's a, there's a very worrying growth um, on June 9th, um, and this is reported from an article by Phil Hurst in Green Left Weekly. Um, it, w- it staged its biggest ever demonstration in Britain in support of the English um, Defence League co-funder um, Tommy Robinson, who was jailed for contempt of court. Um, and of course, but you know, there's the British politics is displaying. Um, Many of the morbid symptoms suffered by the other European countries after witnessing the rise of the anti-immigrant hard right. Um, There's also a deep um, attachment to multiculturalism in big sections of the population and a mass left-wing opposition, which is kind of was reflected in the kind of massive um, rallies um, 
against the visit of um, US President Donald Trump on July um, the 13th and the 14th. Um, and, you know, there was like, hundreds and thousands demonstrated all over Europe. Um, but then there's also there's also a lot of um, messy kind of things happening. I mean, you could probably argue um, that the May government is in a state of crisis, um, mm. and and so we have we have a, a kind of situation where it could be Theresa May could the government could fall at any moment. But then you also have this situation where a lot of the economic elites, because on the on the other hand you have Jeremy Corbyn who represents um, the leader of the Labor Party. Uh, you know, open kind of socialists, democratic socialists, um, and you know, arguing, you know, to na- um, you know, to put the needs of the working people over, over the rich. You have this sort of situation where the kind of economic elites are probably they 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 don't actually they're pretty. Um, there's a bit of a crisis with the with the fact that Theresa May is not necessarily um, doing the right things for the economic elites. But then you have this situation where. There's a bit of unity, even the fact that they don't actually want a Corbyn-led government elect either. Um, <laughs> Definitely against their own interests. So um, there's a, there's there, this is where you kind of have this kind of crisis point where it could be likely that uh, they could you could have a Corbyn-led government, um, but he, also Corbyn's facing opposition from the right wing in his own, especially the Blairites in his own party. And one of the biggest kind of smears that has been kind of thrown against Jeremy Corbyn is these accusations of anti-Semitism um, in the Labor Party, which has been um, clearly, I think, exaggerated. Although there has been, you know, probably some problematic um, there is because um, the Labor Party is a massive party that's attracted two hundred thousand members um, since Corbyn has been elected um, as a leader. There's probably some people that might have um, problematic views, but it's sort of like it's clear that this is a political attack on Corbyn for his um, support for Palestine. Um, the fact is that you know they've. There's been this sort of move by the Zionist lobby to make it argument that calling Israeli Israel apartheid state is anti-Semitic when actually it's not. Um, it's and it's clear that you know Corbyn is only under such a sheer attack for this sort of so-called crisis of anti-Semitism in the party as the fact that the Blairites have sought to take advantage of it to undermine his leadership. But the problem, the other, but the issue is here. Uh, the other issue is though as well. Um, that Corbyn has a strong mandate. He is supported by the majority of his rank and file membership. But then you have a contradict a problem in the fact that a lot of the there's a significant number of MPs who are seeking to undermine his leadership. So interesting times in the UK politically. Yeah. So we don't we. It's really when you have the this situation of the growth of the far right, you have all these complex kind of negotiations happening around um, the the Brexit, around the leaving the European Union, um, which is which is even dividing the Tories. And then you also have divisions in the Labor Party. It, it's, it, it doesn't seem to be clear where this is going, going to go. And um, you can probably read about this more in um, Phil Hurst's article, but there is some, um, you know, it's, we're living kind of in dangerous times for the British working class. Um, dangerous you know, and polarised times. Yeah. yeah. And so you have, um, we have a po- real possibility of an even more right-wing Tory government on the horizon. However, despite all the attacks, it also appears um, that a Corbyn Labor government is equally possible. So there's, it's quite exciting. It is quite exciting, but also a bit terrifying as well. Because we just <laughs> don't know where things will go- uh, get to go. All right, so that's a bit of a current kind of update on the British politics. We're likely to sort of potentially do a bit of an interview um, in the UK with an activist to sort of give a bit of 
find out a bit more about the sort of what's what's happening on the ground and get a bit more insights. Okay, um, good morning. It's, it's, um, so it's 8am and it's sort of like now time for the Green Left Weekly Activist Calendar. Um, so to tell you about some of the events um, that are coming up, um, the, this Saturday there's going to be a fundraiser, uh, send a medical team to Gaza, which will be a night of music and entertainment um, to help nurse um, Riyadh um, and a medical team to Gaza with much needed medical, um, or to help send Nurse Riyadh uh, and a medical team to Gaza with much needed medical supplies and equipment um, to um, equip and equipment to help aid the injured. And so they'll be happening at 5 p.m. this Saturday at the Formbury Hotel, um, Formbury Theatre, um, 859 High Street, and it's organised by, in Formbury, and it's organised by the Palestinian Community Association, Victoria, the Gaza Children's Fund, and Solidarity for Palestine. Um, on Monday, there'll be a public meeting on banning nuclear weapons. Um, Australia must act. And it's marking around um, Hiroshima Day. Um, last year, the UN adopted the treaty on the prohibition of nuclear weapons, but Australia did not vote for it and has not signed it. And that'll be at 7pm for a 7.30pm start at the Cardinal Knox Centre, 383 Albert Street in East Melbourne. Um just to highlight, there is a panel discussion on Indigenous um, youth incarceration and education, um, and they'll be happening at 6.30pm at the Arena Project Space 2 in Kia Street in Fitzroy, and it's presented by the Melbourne Educators for Social and Environmental Justice and Arena. Um, from Sunday on August 11th, there'll be the Anarchist Book Fair from 10am to 6pm at the Brunswick Town Hall, corner of Dawson Street and Sydney Road. Um, there'll be... Um, on Tuesday, the August the 14th, um, tickets are sort of a bit expensive for this, but there'll be Cornell West will be speaking on Polarised um, with a focus on justice and equality. Um, Cornell West provides a voice that stands out in both volume and content. Um, his goal with this tour is to extend his influence to Australian values and bring about a global consciousness in line with the legacy of Martin Luther King. And so it'll be at 7pm at the Melbourne Town Hall. So if you just search Cornell West Speaks Polarised, you'll be able to book tickets. Um, and that, and the, that I think is it in terms of the events coming. So I think, guess for the next, um, four to six minutes, um, I'll just play a song to fill up some time, um, for, before our uh, first interview or our second and uh, interview of the program. Um, so I'll play, um, Sister Girls by Oif. All right. Um, good morning, listeners. Um, you're listening to Green Left Weekly um, Radio. Um, so we on the line, um, we have some representatives um, uh, from the Grandmothers Against um, Removals and the Shut Youth um, Prisons um, who are demanding um, that bail reviews be conducted um, following the Territory Family Snap decision um, to transfer a, a number of Aboriginal children from the overcrowded Alice Springs Youth Detention Centre to Don Dow in Martin. Uh, in no in Darwin. Um, so good morning. Yeah, good morning to you and good morning to the listeners. My yeah. name is Sabella. Hi, so, good morning. Yeah. Um, so what can you tell us about sort of um, your campaign and sort of what the kind of current situation is? Well, our campaign is like uh, we want to see the Don Dale Centre closed. Yep. It has been two years now since the Royal Commission inquiry. Yep. And the children have the Four Corners report, and it was still happening. Yeah, they're back. 
Nobody came to us. Nobody let us. No one was going on. Nothing. Yeah. And so, what can you tell us about sort of um, 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 some of the protests that's been happening, and what have the what have the government um have actually promised? Because you know there was this big sort of outcry about Dondao, yet it does it. Has there been anything have happened? Has happened since then? <clears throat> well, not. We really never be here, and that's what I'm saying. We don't get to hear nothing. You know, when we have uh, rallies and protests and that, and we don't get any feedback from anybody. Mm. Because we are um, uh, worried about our children's safety, you know? Of it's, course. It's all... Sorry, go ahead. Yeah, well, it's all, all about... We want to see our children taken back to country, you know, and where they can heal and that. And, I mean, I guess um, um, one of the thing, um, one, I guess the next kind of thing is, um, um, what can you tell us about some of the children that have been imprisoned? Um, uh, have they, have there been any um, that have been released at this point? Well, not that I know, not that we know, but as certain um, certain desert grandmothers would love to see all children released, not. Not one. Yep. It's got to be all, because they all belong to us. And also the bail conditions. We don't like the bail accommodation. We're not with the bail accommodations. They have to go home. They have to support the communities, build children, children um, to go home, and they can support the community for the children to go home. Mm. Because at the moment, it's not working. And the uh, detention centre is overcrowded. Our children are sleeping on the floors. And then they are extradited to Dondale Centre where they have no conferencing, no communication with the community, the family, the parents, everything. And one of, one of the demands you're making is that you're demanding um, bail reviews um, to be conducted. And so what, what, what's the sort of happening there? Um, hi, it's Merritt here from Shut Youth Prisons. I'm here with Sabella Noire Turner. Yeah, yeah. Answer your question on the bail reviews. Um, like in May this year, 95% of kids that were in the Alice Springs Youth Detention Centre were on a mine. That means there's no convictions laid on them. The vast majority of kids in detention across Australia is, have no convictions on them. They're on a mine. So a simple, simple solution for the overcrowding issues that we're experiencing here, you know, the absolute abuse of kids' rights that we're experiencing here in the Northern Territory would be bail abuse. You know, mm. if those kids could get bail to go to their family, mm. um, you know, we would see we would see kids returning to country and we'd see kids returning to community. Mm. And um, well, I guess... Um Maybe um, to sort of the last kind of question, Gray, is sort of like what's kind of next um, for your campaign? Because um, you've been um, protesting. Um, are you continu- um, what is sort of the next kind of actions that you're going to do to make the demand that these youth prisons be shut down and all the Aboriginal children be released? Well, the next action is that uh, we'd love to see. We would like to see somebody come up to us and talk about all this because we don't know what's happening to our children and families need to be together according to the UN nation law, you know, the human rights law. 
and every child has the right to be with their family. So these people are just treating our children just like nobody owned them because we all own our little ones in the, in the detention centers here. And we would like to see the detention centers closed as soon as possible and children taken home to their communities, to their families. Thank you so much for your efforts. We really appreciate all the work that you're doing. And it's disappointing to hear that nobody is listening to you and nobody is telling you what's happening. It's um, it's extremely disappointing. Yeah, it is disappointing. And I'd love to say that nobody is perfect. You know, everybody all the same. But we want our children home with us, mm. not there in with the bloody barbed wires and everything around them. Absolutely. So These are kids. These are kids. We've got to remember that. Yeah, they're a future generation. We want to look after them with love and care. And um, they can continue to live like we do as our ancestors. Thank you very much. Please keep up the fight. Yeah, um, thank you very much. And we'll continue to publicise um, your um, your protests and what you're doing um, to our, on our program. It's all yeah, day with you. Thank you very much. All right, so we're just interviewing um, representatives from uh, such as um, the Grandmothers Against Removals and um, Shut Youth um, Prisons who are demanding that bail views being deducted um, following the Territory's family snap decision to transfer a number of Aboriginal children um, from the overcrowded Alice Springs Youth Detention Centre to Dondale in Darwin. Um, you know, which is despite the fact that, you know, the 2017 Northern Territory Royal Commission, um, which found um, rampant abuse of child prisoners within Dondale was deemed unfit and recommended for closure, which I guess is still not happening. And uh, it's interesting uh, to point out, um, uh, as the um, representative said, they're acting like nobody owns these kids when they have families and they have people who are fighting for them and yet nobody's telling them what's happening and nobody's listening to them. It's disappointing, but I've obviously not surprising, really. Hmm. Okay, so um, I guess we'll just play... Um, we have, like, probably um, seven to eight minutes on the program. Um, so I go and want to just read up um, this article, which is sort of the back cover um, article of Green Left Weekly, um, and it's about the situation... It's about... Um, sort of the politics of um, East Timor, uh, and it's a bit of a kind of reflection on sort of the campaign. And it's an article from Peter Boyle, um, who, you know, writes here that, you know, activists from the movement against the occupation of the Timor Sea in Timorese um, demonstrated outside um, the Australian embassy in the capital, Dili, on July 25th. Um, and this coincided with um, several de- de- with de- demonstrations in several cities across Australia to protest the coalition's government persecution of the former ACT uh, Attorney General um, Bernard Collery. Um, Collery is a lawyer representing the unnamed spy who was accused of blowing the whistle on the alleged bugging of the Timorese government delegation by the a- a- um, Australian Secret Intelligence Service during critical negotiations over the maritime boundary between the two countries. Um, and to give a bit of background in this case, um, the case which was to start in a magistrate's court in Canberra on July 25th, but has now been po- postponed to September 12th, and you know, is a, it's kind of like, as Peter writes here, is an extraordinary example of how closely Australian governments work with multinational fossil fuel comp- um, corporations. Um, and in 2004... 
a, uh, the Australian um, Secret Intelligence Services allegedly placed listening devices in the walls of the offices of the Temeru Leases um, Prime Minister and Cabinet during a refurbishment um, program conducted by AusAid, um, the Australian Government's Foreign Aid Agency. You know, this um, enabled Australian officials to listen in to the plans of Timorese negotiators over the shreddy about the US $65 billion Greater Sunrise offshore gas field in the Timorese Sea. And of course, Witness K was a member of the AS Australian Secret Intelligence Services who was present during um, the bugging operation. He complained to his superiors on returning to Australia when he discovered then Foreign Minister Alexander Downey and the former head of the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade Ashton Covered were both lobbying for Woodside Petroleum, an oil company with a major interest in the exploitation of the Timor Sea resources. Um, Witness K was permitted by his superiors to engage Colliery as his lawyer. After much deliberation, Colliery and Witness K concluded that Australian intelligence services were being used to spy for financial gain. Um, in 2015, the matter was exposed in the news. The Timorese government, furious at the spying, withdrew from the treaty talks and took Australia to the International Court. Okay. Um, international um, um, International Court of Justice. Colliery's offices were then raided by the Australian Secret Intelligence, Intelligence um, Security Intelligence Organisation (ASIO), Australia's domestic spy agency, and a large number of legal documents were confiscated. And so, I think that's some that's some of the the kind of sort of bit of background, I guess, on East Timor. But I guess the kind of point, some of the political points that I think Peter was sort of trying to draw out as well in sort of this case is that you know. You know, it was really this all kind of this is sort of continuation from what happened in the past around the East Timor Solidarity Campaign, and you know, in you know, what this kind of case shows is you know it's a shocking case of of how Australian government's coalition of labour shocking yeah have served multinational multinational corporate interests at the expense of the Timorese people, and of course you know even Gough Whitlam's Labour government portrayed newly independent East Timor in 1975, abetting the bloody Indonesian occupation of this country and shamefully shamefully becoming the only nation to recognise the occupied territory as part of Indonesia. And then there was, you know, it was only the brave resistance of the Timorese people and the mass movement of solidarity that forced a later Australian government to retreat from the coalition, from this collusion with the Indonesians' occupation of this neighbouring nation. However, you know, we still see this kind of continued kind of dirty work on behalf of big oil secretly continue. And of course, if there's a real lesson in some of the in this in the whole case of East Timor. Um, you know, we don't necessarily have real democracy in Australia. You know, we may have a parliament that we vote for every few years, but it is the big corporations that really rule this country, in particular the fossil-free fuel companies, the big banks and the media monopolies. And, of course, you know, there's serve, Peter Boyle also points out that, you know, there's surveys that show up that up to 80% of Australians don't believe that governments serve their interests and they're dead right. Certainly radical reforms to the electoral system are needed, but in the end, these won't be enough if the economic resources of our society are not democratised. Um, there can be no real democracy when, you know, a few powerful interests um, uh, own and control most of the resources. Yeah, it, it blows my mind. I mean... Let's just emphasise and reiterate that an Australian government agency spied on a foreign country for corporate interest. That just blows my mind. And that's something that we should take away from this. That That is crazy hmm. and illegal. <laughs> <laughs> 
Yeah, and um, it's probably also worth um, that um, FreeCR has sort of been at the forefront of um, the um, East Timor Solidarity Campaign, and we probably have a, like, a lot of archival interviews and um, recordings of different rallies and demonstrations that have happened over the years, because um, I think the East Timor Solidarity Movement was at its strongest in the late 90s. Again, this reiterates the importance of community radio as an independent voice. Mm. Okay, um, so I guess um, we're getting into sort of the end of our program. I'd um, like to thank um, all our listeners um, for tuning in, um, thank all our guests um, for being on the program, um, and that um, I guess a few kind of things to... Um, well, I think we have, yeah, we have five minutes left, so I guess it's just a few... I might just play a quick two-minute um, song uh, to close the program, and then I'll play the, conclu- and I'll play the last... Um, outro of the program um so the song i'm just going to play for the next few minutes is difficult by cable ties and then we'll move on to closing up the program this brings us to the end of the show you have been listening to friday morning breakfast with green left radio brought to you by the green left weekly newspaper which provides a weekly source of alternative information which aims to inspire action to put people and the environment first if you would like to subscribe to the newspaper and get it delivered to your door You can do so by visiting the website at greenleft.org.au or call 1-800-634-206. For new subscribers, it is only $10 for the first six issues. Repeats of the show and interviews are podcasts on our homepage on the 3CR website. Thank you for listening. You are tuned into 3CR Community Radio, 855 Digital on the AM dial and streaming live on 3cr.org.au.